This talk um, will be a quick introduction to a much bigger project that Anna Levis and I have been working on for a number of years now. Um, this specific talk is part of the paper that we co-authored in which we argued for urgent attention to relationships between material culture and mental health, both in the context of eating disorders and more widely. But our broader project has to do with the materialities of mental health, and we've been co-editing a volume on this very topic for the last three years now, I think. Um, hopefully, it will come out next year. Um, and as you will see in today's talk, um, our focus is really on exploring how material culture, the mundane, everyday items that people encounter, can actually tell us a lot about the way that people experience mental health and mental ill health, um, and in this instance, eating disorders. So um, the way we originally structured this um, was for each of us to give a 20-minute talk where we would each focus on our own ethnographic case studies, but because Anna is not here, um, unfortunately, you will not hear her case studies, only mine, I'm sorry. Um, but we'll still have a lot of time for discussion, and I'll, I should also be able to respond um, to issues that pertain to her work as well. So as I said before, um, this talk um, is part of a larger paper that Anna Levis and I co-authored, um, where we wanted to bring eating disorders into dialogue with recent work on embodied practice and materialities of care. In today's talk, I trace how eating disordered embodiment comes into clinical being through engagements with mundane objects, offering a critical lens onto the tension between the body as phenomenologically lived and the body as socio-medically constituted. I draw together seemingly paradoxical constructions of eating disorders to develop an account of this so-called disordered body as generated and made meaningful at the intersections of clinical structures and sensory experience. Over the past three decades, the material turn has focused on the stuff of human and non-human environments and bodies. Although united by a core interest, the various disciplinary strands of this engagement, which include anthropology, sociology, and geography, among others, have taken differing theoretical approaches to objects, from exploring social life through a material lens, as Danny Miller has, to advocating a radical essentialism, which breaks down divisions between concept and matter, object and subject. Um, the ways in which objects move, act, and disrupt have been a core concern in all of these disciplines, um, as well as in science and technology studies, or STS, where socio-technical approaches, most prominently actor network theory, have delineated the co-constitutive interactions between material objects and human and non-human animals. In other words, um, these approaches to materiality have framed it as coming into being through its effects on other objects or bodies, thereby being relational and contingent as well as agential. And I think that the focus on relationality is really the key here. And this emphasis on emergence and agency demonstrates the influence of key thinkers um, in SDS and more broadly in the philosophy of science, such as uh, 
Jane Bennett and Karen Barad. And although different in stance and focus, their work shares an analytic attention to the workings of agency power and resistance. So key to this talk is understanding how an attention to agency power and resistance as embodied in and through material objects can trouble or open up breaches in the categories we use to order the world, to quote De Silvi. In this case, these categories are both clinical and social, and they are categories used to define eating disorders and the people who live through eating disorders. Of particular relevance to today's talk, much of which will focus on how eating disorders are embodied in clinical spaces, such as eating disorders wards, is the concept of embodied space, as articulated by Setha Lowe, which militates against the delimiting of the body from geography and against the delimiting of social structure from physical structure. Embodied space, writes Lowe, quote, is the location where human experience and consciousness takes on material and spatial form through spatial orientation, movement, and language, end quote. This blurring of boundaries between humans, spaces, and material objects is co-constitutive, however, does not displace the body. Rather, it suggests that humans and objects are kin. They are enmeshed and entangled in the material makings of one another, with no clear boundaries to be drawn between the flesh of one and the flesh of the other. In the rest of this talk, I will draw on these critical approaches to materiality to engage with objects as a critical lens onto subjectivities and experiences of eating disorders. Drawing on fieldwork I conducted in Israel from 2005 to 2006 and in 2011, I will explore the materialities of eating disorders by focusing on four objects that were, each in a different way, core to the production of eating disorders on an inpatient ward. Approaching these as agential but also mutable artifacts, again to quote De Silvi, that shape body and being in eating disorders, I draw into view the material dynamics of embodiment, exploring, as Anna Levis and I have written in an earlier publication, how, quote, objects recast corporeality shaping not only experiences of embodied life, but also the very matter of embodiment, end quote. By focusing on seemingly mundane objects in the clinical environment, I trace the fraught intersections of the clinical and the everyday in the forging of embodied anorexic subjectivity. So I'm going to um, read out to you two vignettes where objects and spaces are placed at the center of analysis in order to explore each woman's lived experience of hospitalization on an eating disorders ward in central Israel. But at the same time, I argue that an attention to materialities goes beyond offering only these snapshots of eating disorders as they are enacted in particular times, places, and framings. Rather, by illustrating how the clinic comes to frame the embodiment of eating disorders in ways that both constrain and create potential, these objects provide a lens onto a wider portrait of eating disorder subjectivity, one that extends beyond the closed spaces of psychiatric wards or clinical categories. So embedded in the materiality of each object are the blurred and mobile boundaries of the clinical and the mundane. The objects show how eating disorder embodiment is forged through their coming together both in and out of the clinic, 
as its ways of ordering space and time becomes absorbed into, but also reconfigured by bodies and selves. So as I will discuss later in this talk, objects from outside the clinical space come to disrupt, reconfigure, and appropriate the clinic. And in turn, objects from inside the clinical space are carried into the participant's recovering or recovered being. So there is a dual directional flow between the clinical and the mundane, which elucidates the jagged meeting points where embodied subjectivities are forged in the case of eating disorders. So in the self and disorder-defining environment of the ward, as we will discuss shortly, mundane objects become key actors in patients' embodied experiences and enactments of situatedness vis-a-vis -vis eating disorders, fellow patients, and non-eating disordered others. And when ward materialities are carried into everyday lives, they highlight the complexities of eating disordered embodiment as something that people carry with them into an outside world that might not even know of their eating disorder. So a brief note about the methods. Um, the ethnographic case studies that I present were part of a wider study that focused on the illness and recovery narratives of 36 Israeli participants with past or present eating disorders, and that included anorexia, bulimia, and eating disorder not otherwise specified. Um, I recruited participants through three main sources, um, including an informal network that was led by the study's key participant, an eating disorder clinic where staff members recruited past and present patients whom they deemed well enough to participate. So there was kind of a focus on recovery um, with that group of participants, and a Hebrew language eating disorders online discussion board. So although many of the interviews took place in the Tel Aviv area, um, the study included participants from all across the country, uh, but the focus today will be on scenes from one particular eating disorders ward in central Israel. Um, so as I said, I'm going to describe two case studies drawn um, from my fieldwork. Um, and while the fieldwork was community-based, so I met people in cafes, in their homes. Um, it was very rare that I actually met someone in a clinical space. Um, medical institutions st still featured centrally in the participants' narratives. So either prior to or during the time of the study, all 36 participants had some form of clinical care, including treatment in outpatient eating disorders clinics, general psychiatric wards, and individual sessions with dietitians, psychiatrists, clinical social workers, and psychotherapists. 14 of the participants had been hospitalized in the same eating disorders inpatient ward where today's case studies um, take place. Um, and the two case studies that I'm going to present focus on experiences of life on this ward, both remembered and in the present tense. Episodes from ward life, as I learned through the narratives of the 14 participants who had been hospitalized in that ward, continue to resonate beyond hospital ward sorry, <laughs> continue to resonate beyond hospital walls, accreting into autobiographical reference points. They were unconfined to abandoned time and space, um, in that ward materialities carried into participants recovering or recovered being. The blue measuring cups used in the ward dining hall to apportion carbohydrates and vegetables transitioned in replica into one participant's kitchen and daily cooking practice. The ward's calorific 
combination of cornflakes and dairy custard reappeared in another participant's university life when she recognized the fellow student as a former inpatient based only on her consumption of this dish at the university cafe. These materialities heightened through their emplacement in an authoritative clinical space continue to articulate eating disordered embodiment outside the ward. Participants' narrations of and interactions with ward materialities delineated an embodiment that was forged through contradictions and ambivalences as material objects became extensions of the formally diagnosed and treated self, growing to contain multitudes, to quote Walt Whitman, of compliance and resistance, illness and health, and belonging and difference. So first vignette, um, which I called Grace and the Photo Album. Grace had a photo album dedicated to her life on the ward. She began to take photographs three months after she was hospitalized, keeping a detailed record of the people, spaces, and objects that marked her stay. A typical stay in inpatient care entailed weeks or months of living in the ward. Patients who showed progress were allowed to go home for weekends or spend a weekday afternoon away. For the most part, however, inpatient stays involved continuous living in the ward's enclosed space, with the occasional supervised excursion to the ward's front yard or a guided walk at night to a nearby landmark. Life on the ward was marked by the strict schedules and regimens of diet and activity prescribed by the senior clinicians under the observations of nursing staff. Guiding me through the photo album, Grace filled in the relational gaps that were not captured in her photographs, identifying roommates, best friends, and favorite members of staff, telling me who had since given birth and who was no longer in touch. Grace photographed and narrated the ward with a loving inflection, and as she turned the pages in her kitchen years after she had been discharged, she did so with a tinge of nostalgia. It's fun, nice, a sweet memory, she reflected, but I don't miss it anymore. I used to miss it so much. Grace's photographs and stories, while positive, continued to highlight experiential moments that designated the ward as a space of surveillance and resistance. There was the common room, or as the ward management named it, the day room, where patients were watched for two hours after every meal. There was the bathroom, where patients were followed by nurses who stood watch. And there was Grace's room, with her suitcase perpetually packed. I was always with one foot out, she explained. This image, however, did not conflict with her story of saying lingering goodbyes on her last day at the ward, having been discharged but feeling unable to leave. The ward, as it emerged in Grace's account, was a haven. It was, she said, a little lab like that, that you could be inside. A lab in the sense that it was very sterile. It was very, very exact and measured conditions. And you knew that you, it's not like the real world, so it eased our burden. But the word, as Grace later explained, was also a prison. As we went through the album, and I observed that Grace had parenthetically noted the diagnosis of each fellow patient she had photographed, she explained that it was so I'd remember. I asked her why, and she said, I defined the disease each patient was in, and she also didn't have a problem defining the disease she got. It's not, I didn't define it judgmentally or divisively. I wrote it in the sense of noting a fact. She got in. What is she in for? For bulimia. Okay, great. We started laughing, and Grace said it was part of every new arrival. 
The word then may have been a haven, a space away from the real world, but Grace kept records that testified to the authoritatively structured, carefully surveyed grids of sociality that the ward entailed. Second vignette, uh, which I titled Sarah, the Chair, and the Television Set. I visited the ward for the first time in the summer of 2006, when Sarah, a participant with whom I had been in contact since my fieldwork began, entered the ward as an inpatient. When I first visited, Sarah and I met in the common room, where most patients congregated with or without visitors, and where the main features were a flat screen television, a few desktop computers, and many upholstered chairs. With the guard at the door, a clinical social worker or a nursing student keeping watch, patients, and by association, visitors, were engaged in the task of sitting still. It was the two-hour surveillance window after the patient's mid-afternoon snack, and Sarah, like other patients classified as anorexic, was not allowed to move around. In conversation with me and her aunt, Sarah occasionally pretended to yawn, stretching her arms at length. Each furtive stretch ended with an exchange of knowing smiles. She and I were acknowledging the resistance embodied in each subtle and forbidden stretch. But Sarah complied with the rules otherwise, eating every meal, drinking water only when allowed, and honoring her clinician's trust when they sent her for an afternoon away with the instruction to eat an ice cream bar, which she did. But Sarah's resistance also took on less obvious shapes and targets. During a later visit, when Sarah and I were engaged in conversation, another patient announced excitedly that her sister had just texted her to say that Hunger Point was being broadcast. The patient turned the television on, and images of pro-anorexia website texts and photographs immediately flooded the screen. This was no surprise. Hunger Point is a made-for-television film in which a young woman dies of anorexia immediately after being released from a residential treatment center, and her sister then turns to pro-anorexia websites for comfort. Sarah was upset. She angrily got up from her chair and turned the television off. But why, the other patient protested, this is a film about a girl who overcomes the disease. Watching Hunger Point in the common room was permitted under ward rules, as was watching the Israeli version of The Biggest Loser, in which contestants classified as obese engage in grueling physical activity and weight loss competitions. Watching the show, according to Sarah, was some patient's favorite pastime during post-dinner surveillance. But Sarah told me she couldn't take it, being surrounded by eating disordered media and by patients' incessant anorexic talk. Sarah's resistance was directed at more than avoiding the triggering effects of anorexic talk and pro-anorexic images. On the ward, other patients were never fully other. Ward life blurred the boundaries of selfhood, creating images of oneself, past, present, and future, that had equal power to inspire and to horrify. During another visit, I observed this blurring of boundaries move into the foreground of Sarah's experience. The patients were allowed to sit with their visitors on hospital linens in the ward's front yard. Among the patients was a young woman who was playing with her child, an infant under the age of two. Sarah and I were sitting with Dar, who had just been recently discharged from the ward. After a while, they turned their attention to the young woman, her husband, and their child. As I wrote in my field notes, Sarah commented on the baby's cuteness, and Dar said, but it hurts to see this. Sarah replied, right, that's why I don't want to have kids. 
Dar was indignant. But the disease won't always be in your life. But Sarah insisted that she didn't intend to have children, which to Dar seemed like an admission that Sarah felt she'll always be at the mercy of this illness. Observing her fellow patient's familial scene while sharing the mandated space and time of post-meal surveillance, Sarah's possibilities for translation were condensed. Within the geographic and relational configurations afforded by the ward, the scene she witnessed inevitably shapeshifted into a deterministic future image of herself. Such instances of identification heightened the danger that inhered in other patients' enactments of eating disorder. Although Sarah did not resist the idea that she would be anorexic for the rest of her life, she resisted the threat of becoming all anorexic. She therefore found herself engaging in a dual resistance, small subversions of the treatment regime, coupled with protests against fellow patients' performances of eating disorder. Within this dual resistance, Sarah was continuously engaged in maintaining a fine balance, reasserting her anorexic self, while not losing herself to the patient group and, by extension, to anorexia. So as we've seen in these two case studies, a focus on material culture forges an analytic pathway into relationships, but also disjunctures, among eating disorders, embodiment, and bodies. And thereby, this poses challenges to contemporary social, scientific, and clinical ways of thinking about eating disorders and their relationship to the body. So while clinically located, the material objects I discussed migrated across spatial boundaries, taking on new meanings as they traversed the clinical and the mundane. As everyday household objects such as televisions, linens, and chairs featured centrally in ward spaces and practices, they turned intimacy inside out. And in the clinic, these objects conveyed the flow between personal and medical space, their very familiarity contributing to an embodied sense of displacement and liminality. In Sarah's case, everyday household objects were consistently dislocated. Bed linens were spread on the ward's front lawn for the patients to use instead of picnic blankets. Upholstered chairs were used for confinement. A television set was placed in a surveillance room for the patients to watch programs while they themselves were being watched. This flow from personal to medical spaces, however, was not unidirectional. Ward materialities also transitioned into mundane spaces, inhabiting the everyday. In Grace's case, memories of the ambivalence of inpatient life and a remembered and actively negotiated anorexic embodiment materialized through a photo album, leafed through in the mundane and sunny environment of her kitchen. Bringing together the sensory affordances of these objects and the direct or indirect possibilities for material interaction prescribed by the clinic, these women creatively mobilized object engagements to assert modes of being in the world. For Sarah, a generic institutional chair became her collaborator in a post-meal surveillance duet, an enactment of compliance with ward rules, staying seated, and simultaneous resistance, stretching her limbs with the chair as a platform, communicating and embodying ambivalence. For Grace, photographs were a means of narrating coexisting, seemingly conflicting versions of ward life, capturing her own experience of simultaneously being in a safe haven and in a confined space. 
Unmasking the affordances of these everyday objects in the stories of both women suggests wider theoretical and therapeutic possibilities, trajectories, and limitations that can be opened up by exploring mental health and illness through a critical lens of materialities. Thank you very much.